This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Miss Ruby Wild and Miss Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. Hello there. We're off for another solo episode with only me, Miss Ruby Wild, as Miss Mayday is off jet-setting the world and having a nice little time to herself, well-earned. So this is going to be another anthology-type case, and in this one, we're going to be revisiting stories like Mike Malloy, do you remember? Iron Mike, the Irish Rasputin. So these are other unkillables. But in this case, a lot of it are going to be people that survived their own executions. So that's not to say that they're immortal, just apparently stubborn about when and how they die. We're going to start with John Smith. I know, it's such an uncommon name. He was a housebreaker, a.k.a. B&E, and he was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging in 1705. When he was brought to the Tyburn Gallows, he was short-dropped and hanged for 15 minutes while people alternated tugging at his legs and holding him up. And after the crowd started chanting for reprieve because he did not die, he was cut down and left to recover. He was asked what it felt like to be hanged, and I'm going to paraphrase his response. He said he was sensible of pain, and then he felt pressure in his head. He saw a bright light, lost all sense of pain, and when he was cut down, he felt feeling and blood in his extremities again. He said it was more painful as it was prickling and shooting pain that was so horrible at the time, he was just wishing that the hanging was successful. He received a pardon after this failed execution, and rather than use this second chance for good, he continued down his criminal path, and he wound up at the Old Bailey for housebreaking again. This time he was acquitted of the crime, then he went again to the Old Bailey. He was lucky again when the prosecutor died prior to the trial starting and he was set free. His luck finally ran out in 1727 when at the age of 66, he was found stealing yet again. This time, he was sentenced to transportation to Virginia, and transportation is where they sent prisoners away from quote-unquote polite society to colonize new locations such as North America and Australia. The problem with transportation was the prisoners did not always survive their journey, and the convict colonies were not exactly humane, so that sentence did not always lead to reform. Sometimes it did wind up being a death sentence for them as well. Next up, we have 1740, William Duell, who was a 17-year-old English boy. He raped, beat, and murdered a girl named Sarah Griffin in West London alongside four other boys. So this was a gang activity. They were all found, tried, and sentenced to be hanged. Their bodies were then to be transported to the local surgeons for education, 
Education is where they were able to obtain bodies to be used for scientific purposes. And in a future episode that we will cover uh, for Burke and Hare, it'll be a Patreon, this was common practice for those who had been executed to allow their bodies to be useful to society. So William also hanged for an extraordinary amount of time, this time for 20 minutes, had his body taken away for the surgeons in training. But while he was on the table, the doctors found him to be breathing. It was very faint, barely noticeable, but he was still breathing after hanging for 20 minutes. So rather than dissecting him or performing a vivisection, which is where you perform a like an autopsy on a living human being, he was instead treated and fully alive the following day. Everyone now wanted to know if he would be hanged again, but keep in mind, he did commit a horrible crime on Sarah as part of the group of five, and he did admit his guilt. He didn't remember being hanged when questioned, but he did state remembering his last rites. Instead of hanging him a second time, they also decided that he was to be exiled and sentenced to transportation to North America. However, that is where his story ends. We have no clue if he actually survived the journey or made it to one of the colonies out there. We're going to move right along to 1801, Joseph Samuels. He was an English criminal who was transported to the penal colony called Sydney Cove in Australia at the age of 15 for thievery. At that time, it was believed no one would attempt to escape the colony. And because it wasn't really a high security place, they believed that the wilderness would be what would discourage prisoners from attempting to leave. It was basically in the middle of the Australian wasteland. Joseph and fellow inmates, however, decided to risk it and they did escape. They were successful in reaching civilization again, but this was unfortunate, but because they were criminals and Joseph was part of a group that were attempting to rob a wealthy woman's home, they were discovered by police constable Joseph Luker, at which point in an escape attempt, he was murdered. Now the gang, oh, that was the cop that was murdered, um, not Joseph. So they were a gang of cop killers on the loose, and their group was quickly rounded up. And Joseph, being present, was searched, and they found that he had coins in his possession that could be tracked back to the scene of the crime, so the wealthy woman's home. Joseph confessed to the robbery, but he denied being the one who killed the police constable. The group, except for Joseph and one other individual, were acquitted because they didn't have enough evidence. So in 1803, Joseph was sent to the gallows with that one other man that was sentenced to death. He was found guilty of killing Luker. So even though he denied killing the police constable, they still had enough evidence to find him guilty. On this execution day, it seemed like a riddle occurred. There were two men, four hangings, one death. So at the time of the hanging, the men standing on, were standing on a cart that was like pulled by a horse. And the horse would move and the men would drop, but it would like let them strangle very slowly. So this wasn't the next snap. So nooses at this time were made of five-cord hemp, and they should hold a 1,000 pounds before they break. As both men were in the cart, Joseph still proclaimed his innocence. Each man had their noose wrapped around their neck, and the horse's bottom was slapped. The men slowly dropped, but Joseph dropped further than his counterpart because the rope around his neck stretched and then snapped, and he dropped to the ground, sprained his ankle. This didn't grant him a reprieve, and they brought out another rope, He was brought in for take two. Unbelievably, this rope unraveled to the point where Joseph was able to touch the ground. So as the slow drop happened, he slowly reached the ground until his toes were touching. The executioner was not one to give up. So round three, yet another rope. It was inspected this time very closely to ensure that absolutely nothing was wrong with any part of it. 
This rope was slipped around Joseph's neck. He was put in the cart again. Now, if you think nothing went wrong, you haven't been paying attention to the episode as we're talking about the unkillables. The rope snapped again. The crowd that had gathered to watch the executions that day became rowdy as they believed that this was an act of divine intervention, and they demanded that Joseph be released, leaving the marshal to delay the hanging until he could confer with the governor. They examined the rope to see if there were signs of tampering, and having found none, Joseph was released. Joseph, however, also did not see this as a reason to change his ways, and he went immediately back to crime. He was arrested again, and in 1806, he attempted an escape again, and it is presumed that this time he died by drowning. As you can tell, I'm progressing through the ages, so now we're at Babacombe Bay in Devonshire in 1884. We have Emma Keys. She was found murdered in her house. It had been set on fire. She had suffered a cut to her throat and blunt force trauma to the head. She was 68 at the time and single, living with only her servants. Only one of these servants was male, John Lee. He was 20 and he was her footman. At the time of the incident, John had cut his own arm and he couldn't really explain how he cut it, but John Lee by no means was squeaky clean. He was dismissed from a previous job for stealing from the employer and he served six months in prison for this crime. The cut on his arm... It seemed to be the only evidence that they had against him, but that was enough to have him sentenced to death, even though he claimed his innocence. The day he was to be hanged in 1885, the trapdoor that was supposed to drop beneath him malfunctioned three times. It's not that they pulled the lever three times and it just didn't open, but they had him stand to the side while they tested the door. The door worked for each test, but when John was standing on it, it would not open. It was also tested with a rock to simulate John's weight to see if the door was malfunctioning because of some weight problem. Nope, the stone dropped without a problem. So his execution was commuted to penal service for life. And the Home Secretary declared, quote, It would shock the feeling of anyone if a man had twice to pay the pangs of imminent death. After 22 years served, he was released in 1907, after which I read in one article that he capitalized on his reputation for being unkillable by going on a lecture circuit and selling interviews to newspapers about what had occurred on that day. After this period of his life, it's unknown where he eventually wound up or when he even died. There was a second suspect brought forth while John was still in prison, Reginald Gwen Templar, who did visit Emma's home often. And he was brought forth while John, you know, like I said, he was um, standing trial. And he even offered to represent John in the trial. But it couldn't be proven that Reginald was actually there at the time. And he wound up losing his faculties. That's a quote. And he mumbled about um, the murder that was committed. And he said this to the mental institution workers that he was in. And he wound up dying an early death. So this is one of those cases where people have been left to speculate Like, did they attempt to hang the wrong man? Is that why there was this quote-unquote divine intervention on this case, too? But so this one's kind of one of those mysteries where you get to try and decide if uh, they had the right man to begin with. They also wanted to know if the executioner possibly was bribed to um, make the trapdoor not open correctly. Some people said it was black magic. Um, But either way, we're never going to know. This time we're going off to Mexico. Uh, 1915, Wenesla Mogul. He was sentenced to death by firing squad for his role in the Mexican Revolution fighting on the side of Pancho Villa, and that means he was declared a traitor. 
He was sentenced to this without any trial, and he stood in front of a nine-man firing squad with a final man on standby to fire a fatal shot into a major organ if he did not die immediately from the previous shots. So though there were nine shots directly into his body with a final shot close range to his face, he survived. So he survived being shot 10 times and he escaped death. The soldiers walked away assuming he was dead. He is shot so many times they thought there was absolutely no way he could survive. He proceeded to crawl away and look for help. He was found by a church parishioner who nursed him back to health. He was then known as El Fusilido, which meant the executed one, because he was executed, technically. He made it into Ripley's Believe It or Not in 1937, and he was showing his face that was disfigured by that final bullet. And you could Google that if you really want to. Um, he didn't wind up dying until 1975 at the age of 85. And that band Chumbawamba from the 90s, they wrote and released a song about him and his feats about being unkillable. You may think that only men are unkillable, but that's not true. There were women who also survived their executions and were deemed to be unkillable. Women who were sentenced to death due to infanticide in the 17th century. It was illegal for a woman to hide a stillbirth or a miscarriage, and therefore a woman can be charged with infanticide even if that child died naturally. However, women who were pregnant out of wedlock or by cheating had reasons to hide their pregnancy. And it was a six of one, half a dozen of the other kind of problem. Either you admit that you are pregnant by means that you should not be in the 17th century, or you hide the fact that you had this baby and risk being sentenced to death for infanticide. And this was the case uh, in 1650 when Anne Green was charged with infanticide, and she did. It was in an attempt to hide uh, a a pregnancy that she should not have had, and so it was self-preservation. When she was an English domestic servant, uh, Sir Thomas Reed, she fell pregnant by his grandson. She claimed she didn't know she was pregnant when the baby was premature and stillborn. She hid the body. You can't do that. However, someone did find the baby's body and traced it back to Anne. She was put on trial and sentenced to hang because of infanticide. She was hanged, cut down, to be delivered to a school for the education. We've seen this before. On the table, she was seen breathing. It's alleged they gave her, I read, a tobacco enema, or they forced her to drink alcohol, and she revived immediately. She was declared innocent by the hand of God. She went on to get married, have more children, and she actually lived with the coffin that she was intended to be buried with, which, in my opinion, is a little bit baller. Next up, we're going to Maggie Dickinson. She was another woman that was convicted of infanticide in 1724 in Edinburgh. She had an illegitimate child while her husband was out to sea. She started a relationship with the innkeeper's son where she worked as a domestic servant. She hid her pregnancy to protect her job, and her baby also was born premature or was a stillborn or died shortly after birth. She placed the baby's body on the banks of the River Tween. The baby was quickly found, and somehow this investigation also led back to Mary. And her execution resulted in her hanging by the neck for 30 minutes. She finally was declared dead. She was cut down, put in her coffin for transport to her family. During the journey, she awoke, and there was a law at the time, and it's called the resurrection, or it's considered the act of God, and she was immediately pardoned. She wound up dying 40 years later, and there is a pub named after her. There were attempts to improve the hanging method to ensure more lethal death sentences, more permanent solutions. 
So what started as a short drop, which is mostly like that slow strangle that we were talking about, um, where you're left to hang rather than have the next snap. This involved into the standard drop of four to six feet. So regardless of weight, height, anything along those lines, the rope was four to six feet long. It was introduced in 1866 by the Irish doctor Samuel Houghton. He introduced this method since he thought the short drop was more humane, or he thought the short drop was inhumane, the slow strangle. His method was to, quote unquote, it should snap a person's neck, causing immediate unconsciousness. But like I said, depending on height and weight, it was not 100% effective. This led to the long drop, which is where they measure the length of rope based on the person's height and weight. And this started in 1872 in Britain by William Marwood. And eventually this event like got switched over to the other means of execution that we have, electric chair, firing squad, gas chamber, lethal injections. So it seems like there's always a progress to make these executions more humane and more permanent. And there are even more stories of people surviving their executions with some immediately being hanged again, but surviving only so like, even though they did survive their execution, they wound up dying one to two minutes later by a repeat execution. Some were killed on the physicians tables as you know, they were brought to the tables for education. And if these physicians saw that they were still alive, they didn't care, they wanted their body, and they would cut them open anyway. Then either way, like even today, people survive lethal injections or with injections being stopped because veins couldn't be found. Like that just happened recently where the person's veins were just so desiccated they couldn't get the lethal injection in. So this isn't a diatribe on capital punishment, whether or not I agree with it, anything along those lines. It doesn't have anything to do with the opinions of vintage homicide on capital punishment. It's just a little shallow dip into the life of the unkillables, or more appropriately named, the delayed killables. Hope you enjoyed this, and we should be back to regular episodes very shortly. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. Murder and mystery.